Good morning. It's good to see each of you. I encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Our text for today will be verses 25 through 36, Romans 11. We started this great journey in the book of Romans back in September, and here we come today to the end of part one. Uh, if you remember all the way back to September, I told you that Romans can be nicely divided into two parts, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 16. So next week, Paul is going to turn the corner a little bit and begin to flesh out, if we will, uh, the implications of what he has written in the first 11 chapters. And so chapters 1 through 11 are highly doctrinal, but also practical. Chapters 12 through 16 are highly practical, but also doctrinal. And so it's important that you see that. So basically, Romans could be summarized this way. Chapters 1 through 11, gospel. Chapters 12 through 16, life. Gospel and life. And so today we come to the end of really the significant detail that Paul has written concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that it means and all that it is. Glorious chapters that we have waded through these recent months. So this morning we find ourselves at the end of that first section, that first part, if you will, of Romans as we look now at chapter 11, and I want to be reading verses 25 down through verse 36. This is God's word. Verse 25, Paul writes, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel... They are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have, been re but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on, on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we turn now to this wonderful chapter and wonderful verses, Lord, would you indeed help us see and feel and know the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. With Paul, Lord, would you help us to rejoice and to delight in how great and glorious you are and how you've demonstrated your love for us through the work, wonderful work of Jesus Christ our Lord to save sinners. Father, would you now teach us and change us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not that often that you get 
a behind-the-scenes look at something, especially something you might find interesting. And there have been moments in my life where I've had the opportunity to get a behind-the-scenes look, if you will, at things that have always been fascinating to me. I remember a couple of them. Uh, one, I remember when, I think it was Colin was in the Cub Scouts, the year that he was in Cub Scouts, we went to a local news station and got a behind-the-scenes look at the news station, and who would have ever thought that the weatherman on TV was not standing in front of a real map? It's actually a green curtain, right? They do all of these graphic things and, and, and all of how that works, and so it's fascinating to see kind of just behind-the-scenes look at how local news happens. And then it wasn't too long after I arrived here, and this was in the message without the stringer's me being mindful that they were going to be here this morning, but I remember it wasn't too long after I came that Scott Stringer led a group of us on a tour of an aircraft carrier down in Norfolk, uh, USS Enterprise. You were getting ready to go on deployment for one last time, and that ship was its last deployment, if I remember correctly, and you took us on a, we could call it a behind-the-scenes look at kind of the aircraft carrier, and we did a prayer walk through that and was able to see uh, the ship, and it was fascinating and amazing. Many times we get opportunities to see things, to get special access, to see things kind of from a behind-the-scenes look. The magic kingdom is such a place. After you've cashed in your 401k so you can afford to actually go there with your family, you can pay $100 more to go on what's called Disney's Key to the Kingdom tour. And that gives you an in-depth five-hour look at Disney World, particularly the Magic Kingdom, uh, uh, what, what most people don't get to see. In fact, this tour gives you look at the hidden secrets of the Magic Kingdom where you can actually visit the famed underground tunnels of Disney World. You can actually see several hidden secrets of classic attractions at the Magic Kingdom for only $100 more, right? $20 an hour and you're set to go at Disney World for the Magic Kingdom tour. Well, that's all fine and good, but we're not at the Magic Kingdom today, are we? Where we are is we're coming to the end of a behind-the-scenes tour, if you will, of a much different and far better kingdom. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a unique section of the New Testament where we get a divinely revealed, behind-the-scenes look, if you will, of salvation. This is one of the few places in the Bible and in the New Testament where, where we're allowed, where God pulls the veil back, if you will, and allows us to see from a divine perspective his master plan to save the world. He gives us a snapshot of how he plans to bring about salvation to both the Jews and the Gentiles, even when it seems unlikely that it could happen. You see, the difference between the glimpse of Romans 9 through 11 and Disney's Keys to the Kingdom tour is incomparable. While the $100 five-hour tour might leave you excited and hyped up on all things Disney, and that's fine, the result we gain from taking a behind-the-scenes look here leaves us with an infinitely greater hope and delight. Nothing this world could ever give you. So we want to look today at this final section of this unit, chapters 9, 10, and 11, as we've been wading through these chapters in recent days and weeks, we come now to the end, and as we consider verses 25 through 36, and really we're, we're seeing, if we could just say 
kind of one broad point this morning is that God's salvation is unfolding just as he planned. That's really what the point of these chapters are saying to us. God's salvation is unfolding just as he planned it to unfold. And you remember it began with Paul concerned in chapter 9. In the first few verses of chapter 9, Paul was concerned, he was grieved, he was burdened because the vast majority of his own kindred, the Jewish people, were not being converted. They were not being saved, and it was tearing Paul up. He was concerned about that. And now by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, what we can conclude is this. God's salvation is unfolding just as he planned it to unfold. Both Jews and Gentiles are being and will be saved. And this is how it was to happen. So as we consider these final verses here in chapter 11, we see a glimpse into the beauty and mystery of God's grace and how that ought to leave us both humbled and filled with worship. Those are really the two simple points that we have today in light of God's salvation unfolding just as he's planned. All of these things ought to leave us humbled and responding in worship. Let's look at these two responses together this morning. First of all, God's salvation should make us humble. It should humble us. When we consider verses 25 through 32, flowing right out of last week's passage that Pastor Jeremy took you through, Paul continues to urge the Gentiles here not to boast in their present blessing. That was really one of the points that we saw last week. The Jewish people in mass had not believed in the gospel. Gentiles had. Basically, what Paul's saying is, don't let that go to your heads, Gentiles. Don't let that, don't let that create this sense of pride in you where, look at us, we're, we're, we're Christians and you're not. Don't let this result in pride. Look at verse 25. He says, now, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Paul's saying, I want you to get this. I want you to understand what's going on. Remember, behind the scenes, look, we, we've got to see from a behind the scenes perspective what it is God is doing. And what it is God is doing will leave us humbled and it will leave us filled with worship and awe for him. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that even though the Gentiles are the present beneficiaries of God's salvation from a general perspective, he didn't want that to go to their head as if it had to do with them at all. Friends, the only reason anyone enjoys salvation is due to God's grace alone, period. That was true for the Jewish people. That was true for the Gentiles. Several things that, from these verses that we see that ought to foster humility in our lives when we consider all the work that God's doing in this world. First of all, I want you to see the plan described in verses 25 through 29. As we kind of look behind the veil, if you will, this morning of what God has been doing and what he's been up to, we see, first of all, the plan of God. He says right here in verse 25 through 29 exactly what he's going to do, what he's been doing, what he is doing, what he will do. Now, it should be stated that these verses we're about to wade into have been highly controversial. Imagine that, right? Here we are again in Romans and something that's kind of controversial. There's been a lot of discussion about what these verses mean exactly. Because Paul says here that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's nothing new. That's basically what we've seen so far in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Israel has received this partial hardening because of their own disobedience and rebellion against God. God's hardened them because they themselves were hardened against him so that the vast majority or a vast 
number of Gentiles are starting to believe in the gospel. But then he goes on to say, in verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, the question that arises here is what does that mean? What does it mean that all Israel will be saved in, in this way? What, those are really the two phrases that, that stir up a lot of the discussion as to what is, it, what is it that Paul is saying here about the Jewish people. Remember, he starts out in chapter 9 wishing himself to be accursed and cut off for the sake of his brothers, according to the flesh, the Israelites. He had unceasing anguish in his heart and great sorrow because the vast majority of them did not believe in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. And now Paul's saying all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Well, you say, Adam, tell us, right? No? Well, let's look at what the text says. Now, there, there has to be a little bit of digging into what we're trying to understand here because it's an important concept to get when we think about the way that God is bringing about salvation for the world. Now, we're not going to exhaust it here in a sermon. There's lots of books and lots of people who have differing viewpoints, even very faithful, godly, Bible-believing people who come to different conclusions on what it means when Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Let me give you at least four, right? You think, what do you mean at least four? There are many others, but there's four common perspectives as to what uh, Paul is saying here. First one is this, is that all Israel means all Israel. Every Israelite, period, of all time will be saved. Now, one thing we know for sure is that it can't mean that. It absolutely cannot mean that. If it meant that every Israelite of all time would be saved, then what was the use for Paul being so upset in the first few verses of chapter 9? It would have been useless for him to be grieved over the lostness of his own people if they're going to be saved in the end to begin with. We could go to many other passages in Scripture where it's clear that you must believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah if you're going to be a Christian. So we know that, it, and some people hold this view, that, well, God's got a kind of a separate plan. He's kind of got his own little thing going with Israel here, and they're not saved in the same way as the rest of the world. Well, that's just contrary to Scripture, brothers and sisters. I cannot see how you can come to that conclusion when you read God's Word and understand exactly how he's bringing about salvation. Well, second of all, others say all Israel means the remnant of believing Jews throughout all time. We've talked about this, how God from the very beginning has always had among his people a believing remnant among the Jewish people. It's always been there, even though small at times. Remember Elijah, he thought he was the only one, and God says, actually, there's 7,000 more that have not bowed the knee to Baal. He's always had this remnant all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout human history. And so it's very plausible that all Israel means the remnant of believing Jews throughout all time. I think that's a highly likely and very plausible understanding of what he means by all Israel. A third viewpoint is that all Israel means the remnant of believing Jews plus believing Gentiles so that the word Israel here is a shorthand for the people of God. It's a common view. It's plausible. Uh, I think that it's, uh, we see another text where God uses the word Israel to refer to the people of God as a whole, including both Jewish people and Gentile people. Um, I don't know that he means that here in this text. It seems when he uses the word Israel here, he's using the word 
regarding ethnic Israel. It could mean that, but it's plausible. But a fourth would be that all Israel is ethnic Israel at the end of time when Jesus returns, where the vast majority of, belie- of living Jews right prior to the second coming of Christ believe in the gospel and are saved. So what that would mean is that prior to the second coming, right before, right in conjunction with, there would be this mass conversion of Jewish people at the end of time before Christ comes. And that, too, is a very plausible understanding of what this text means. You say, well, which one is it? To be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a very difficult passage to understand what he means. What I do know is this, it cannot mean every single Israelite of all time. It cannot mean that. I think there's validity in the fact that it means, I I think we can say for sure it, it does include the remnant of believing Jews throughout all time. I think it has implication, and I think we see some biblical warrant for there to be a large ingathering of Jews prior to the second coming. And so I think conjunction with those two, somewhere in that, we can see that perhaps that's exactly what Paul is referring to here. But basically, Paul's argument would go something like this. There's been a partial hardening. Some people misunderstand what that means. Some people apply the word partial to time. It has nothing to do with time as much as it has to do with people. There's been a partial hardening of Israel, meaning that some of Israel have been hardened, not as a whole because some still believe. There's been a partial hardening of Israel, meaning some of the Jews, not all, but a partial hardening, have been hardened so that that made opportunity for the Gentiles to be grafted in. And it's the Gentiles that are largely now believing in the gospel, but that does not mean God is finished with his own people, the Jewish people, It's not the end of the story. So when the fullness of the Gentiles, when the complete number of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved, whether that's all the remnant or whether that's Israel plus Gentiles or there's a large ingathering of believing Jews before the second coming. Again, note the word partial and the word until. Key words that lead us to conclude many times, many folks, that after the full number of the Gentiles comes in, the partial hardening will be removed and that there could very likely be a large influx of Jewish people at that time who will believe in the gospel. How will they do that? Verse 26 answers that question. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. Many many think this verse refers to the second coming. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verses 26 through 27 speak of how the deliverer will come from heavenly Jerusalem, from Zion, and banish ungodliness from Jacob, Israel. Another word for Israel. And therefore keep his covenant with them as he pardons their sin. Now there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot more to the discussion and a lot more to the debate. But the simple point remains the same. Regardless of where you land on these things, some of the Jews were hardened, the Gentiles are believing, and when their full number is reached, the deliverer will return at that moment. All Israel will be saved, however you want to define that. That's what God's plan is. So behind the scenes, look, that's what he's saying is happening. And what that means simply for us is that we can have the utmost confidence that Jesus is doing exactly as he promised. He is building his church. Jesus is bringing about the plan that God had planned long before time began. He's bringing about that plan, and that plan includes both Jews and Gentiles. 
one people of God, one Savior, one destiny. That's exactly what we see happening, the plan as it is unfolded. But I want us to see the method applied. So we see that verses 25 through 29 kind of explain in a general fashion, although perplexing, but general fashion, what it is God's doing. And this is how he goes about doing that. Look at verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now, have been, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So he's talking to Gentiles here. Just as one time you were disobedient, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews. So they, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, that they may also now receive mercy. You with me so far? All right. And then in verse 32, he summarizes. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The word all there is important because we need to understand what he's referring to. He's referring to both Jews and Gentiles, the shorthand for saying Jew and Gentile. For God has consigned all, Jew and Gentile, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, Jew and Gentile. It's important for us to see. So again, we see that God is not finished with his people. Back in verse 28, he says, as regards the gospel... They, the Jews, are enemies of God for your sake, Gentiles, so that you could be brought in. But as regards election, remember God's, God's decree of election is what roots us in, in hope that these folks will be saved. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God remembers his covenant to the forefathers, and he will bring about his plan to save both Jews and Gentiles. God's method is simple. What God does among the Jews, he does for the sake of the Gentiles. And what God does among the Gentiles, he does for the sake of the Jews. So that people from both groups are saved. It's really a wonderful reminder that even in God's severest of judgments, his mercy is on display. Think about just the severity of the judgment that the Jewish people were receiving in the hardening. He is doing that so as to expand his mercy to the Gentiles and then back to the Jews. He consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Friends, God's mercy is all the more glorious when placed against our disobedience, isn't it? God's method is simple. He grants mercy. And brothers and sisters, we should never conclude that the mercy of God is no longer available. You don't see Paul concluding that, even though what seemed to be vast rejection around him from his own people, he was not giving up on the mercy of God, was he? He knew that the mercy of God was still available even to people who had vastly rejected the truth. Friends, as long as we still remain, so does mercy. So does mercy. There are several practical things, to implications to draw from all of this. You know, I said earlier that this ought to create in us a deep sense of humility before God. And that humility should lead to the following actions. First of all, we see it should lead us to a belief in the exclusivity of the gospel. 
Israel was hardened because it rejected Jesus as Messiah. And the Gentiles had been blessed because they were now believing Jesus as the Messiah. God blessed them so that they could believe. And one of the things you can draw from this very easily is, is simply put, if you reject Jesus as, as Savior and Lord, then you're simply an enemy of God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. You come to, to salvation the same way. There's no Jewish plan and there's no Gentile plan. There's God's plan, and that is to save those who will believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. So one of the responses to all of this is that we should come away with is that, that we should believe in the exclusive claims of Christ. That their salvation is found in no other name. Salvation is not something you can conjure up on your own. Salvation is not something you can find in some other path or in some other way or by doing good work. Salvation is found by coming to the end of yourself and realizing there is nothing you can do in and of yourself to earn or to somehow gain salvation on your own. But salvation leads us to understand that only Christ can save only Christ can save because he is the one sent from the Father to live the life we should have lived and yet was nailed to a cross to bear the punishment for the sin we all deserve. So that anyone, Jew or Gentile, that would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, that is the hope that is available. That is the exclusive gospel, which leads us to point number two, a response to the call of the gospel. When you read verse 25, you need to read a sense of urgency here. Look at what he says. He says, I want you to understand this mystery. This is, he, Paul wants you to get it. This is not just, oh, kind of some footnote stuff. This is not just kind of an appendix. If you get time to it, read it, read up on it later. This is critical. I want you to get this mystery. It is a mystery. It's, it's perplexing in some way. It's kind of beyond us in some way, but he wants you to understand it. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness or the full number of the Gentiles has come in. When you, when you think about that, the fact that there is a full number of Gentiles, that should make you stand back a minute and consider whether or not you're in or not. There's a, there's a full number of Gentiles, and the vast, vast majority of us in here are Gentiles. There's a full number of you. And there's a day when that number will be complete. And that should lead you to conclude, am I part of that number? A am I in that number? I want to be in that number. I want to be counted among that number on that day. Am I in it? Am I in that number? And you, you should come away thinking, am I part of the fullness of the Gentiles? R.C. Sproul, in one of the works that he wrote, speculated, but he said, and I thought it was helpful, he said, we may very well be on the cusp of the last roundup of the Gentiles. We don't know when that will be, but we may very well be on the last cusp of the last roundup of the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, you need to consider whether or not you're in or not. Friends, you should not mess around with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The response to it is to simply take hold of it and believe it. You don't just want to sit there and say, well, let me, let me consider, let me continue to, to think through this. Friends, if, if you're here and you have questions, you're not a Christian, you have questions, we would love nothing more than to sit down with you and talk about those questions. We want to encourage you. We want to help you. We want you to understand the truth of the gospel. We want you to understand it so that you will believe it. The gospel is not just something to mess with. It's something to take hold of and embrace and believe. Listen, one of the things that we can take away from this, there's a day coming when there will be no more mercy. I said it's available now for the taking. There's a day coming, though, when it will be no longer available. The door will be closed, and there will be no more mercy. So, friend, the response to this good news is a response that is needed now. It's needed now. So if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, I would just urge you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ, to understand that he is God's provision for you so that you can be right with God and that you would take hold of him in faith and believe that what he did, he did for people just like you so that your sins can be forgiven and you can be right with God who is holy. And if you've not believed that, would you believe that today? Would you talk with someone today? before you leave here today about what that means. And it also leads to another implication, and that is the faithfulness in sharing the gospel. Listen, God rounds all of his people up, whether they're Jew or Gentile, the same way. It's through the preaching of the gospel. It's through the sharing of the gospel. Romans 10 is operative right here. It, it's how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone Preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are since? Friends, God doesn't save anyone apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even if it's true that there will be a massive turning of the Jews to Christ in conjunction with his return in the future, it will also be true that every single one of them must believe in the gospel to be saved. Just as is true today. If you are to be saved, you must believe in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God isn't going to save anyone without Christ. So, what does that mean as the church? Well, one, it means that we should pray. We should be praying for the fullness of the Gentiles and the salvation of the Jews. That's one of the things you should be praying for. We should be praying for this to take place. God says it's going to take place, and we should be praying to that end. So when you pray, be praying for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in and be praying for the salvation of the Jewish people. And not only should we pray, we should work for it. We should be striving in the things that we do as a church and as individual believers of Christ. We should be working to this end. We should be working with God as he rounds his people up for his glory. In fact, that's his main method of doing so. It's through you. Being faithful heralds, proclaimers, 
agents, ambassadors of the gospel, that we would go forth and tell the good news to those around us. And as we tell the good news, God rounds his people up. That's how he works. You say, well, can he do it without me? He most certainly can, and he will. But he chooses to use us, and it's you that misses out on the blessing. It is you that, that dishonors him by being disobedient to the ways that he's called us to be part of this great work. So friends, let's work hard in faithfully sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is the means through which God brings his people to faith in Christ. So it should humble us. It should remind us that this is not about us. This is about Christ. This is about the glory of God. And so we should believe in Christ. We should respond to the call of the gospel. And we should be faithful in sharing the gospel, not faithful in sharing what we think is good. We should be faithful ambassadors. Number two, it leads us to respond in worship. God's salvation should make us worship. You know, as you think about all that God has done and all that God is doing and all that God will do in the future, as Paul thinks about that, he can't help himself but to break out in praise. I mean, he has just spent... 11 chapters unpacking in massive detail the beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He began in chapter 1, 2, and 3 as he unfolded the condition of who we are. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, he says. And then he goes into chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 as he begins to unfold the beautiful reality of grace and how through faith in Christ and Christ alone there is hope to be rescued from this fallen condition. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11 he says this is exactly how I'm going to bring that to pass among the Jewish people, among the Gentiles so that I will have one people for my fame for all of eternity. And Paul as he gets to the end of that he cannot help. He's not done with the letter. But he stops here and he just breaks out and prays, Oh, the depth, he says, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That would have been a great ending, right? Paul's not done with the letter, but he just he can't help himself. He, he doesn't want to wait to the end. He just breaks out now in praise as he considers the glorious good news. Friends, this is what it does to us. It humbles us and it leads us to worship God. This is what grace does. It takes those who worship themselves and other things, and it converts us so that we now worship and praise God. What we see here is Paul's bare emotion as he contemplates the truths, not only as he written in 9 through 11, but all the way back since chapter 1, where he says in verse 16, by the way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Sheer wonder and amazement. That's Paul. Oh, the depths. Friends, when you contemplate the depths of the riches of God's grace, you cannot help but be overwhelmed. 
as many have rightly put it before, right theology certainly leads to doxology. And that's exactly what we have here. As Paul gets to the end of this great theological masterpiece as he unfolds the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, he responds in doxology, in praise of God for all that God is and all that God has done and is doing and will do. Now, what is it that Paul expresses in this worship? I want you to see these things here in this text briefly. First of all, he, he expresses the wisdom and knowledge of God and how it's inexhaustible. How unsearchable, he says, are his judgments, inscrutable his ways, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I mean, who could have come up with this? This plan that God has to save people from the Jews and the Gentiles in the way that he's gone about it. I mean, could you have written this? Could you have made this up? Could you have created this, this scheme of how God unfolds salvation to a people who, by the way, all Jew and Gentile both, who, who don't deserve it? God is doing it this way. Here Paul speaks of God's wisdom and knowledge as the depths. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, we're told that of God, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep things and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. You know, when I think about the depths, I can't help but think about the ocean. You think about the ocean. There are places in the ocean where it is so deep and so dark, you would literally not be able to see your hand right in front of your face. There are species of fish that live in the depths of the ocean that you will never see in your lifetime, ever. You can't. It's so deep and so dark, you cannot physically see these species that exist. When you say, well, how do you know they're there? Somebody said, said, said about it somewhere. There's ways to see it, obviously, but, but you, in generally speaking, cannot see what's in the depths of this ocean. Friend, even more so, that's how it is with God. He's far too deep to ever exhaust. You wonder why some of these things are hard to understand? It's because they stem from the depths of God. The wisdom and knowledge of God is inexhaustible, but the ways of God are unsearchable. You know, we wonder why things are so beyond us at times, and we wonder why God works in mysterious and perplexing ways. And we, we wonder why we wonder. Friend, if God could be understood fully and explained exhaustively, he would cease being God. There will always be, I think even in heaven, a sense of the mystery and depth and wonder of who God is. He is the only being that has ever been that will never be exhausted. You know, a computer can pretty much have everything about you in it. There's no such computer that can have everything about God in it. He's inexhaustible. He's unsearchable. 
His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If God could be exhausted again, he would cease being God. Now, certainly that doesn't mean that we, we can't know some things about him. He's revealed some things about him in his word, right? This is not, the, this is not everything about him. You'll spend all of your life reading this and never fully grasping the depths of what God's revealed in the Bible. He has revealed, but the fullness of his ways are unknown to us. We can't possibly know all that he's up to. But we can always know that it's good. You know, I think about Job. I've been reading through Job in my quiet time lately, and Job goes through tremendous suffering, and he asks all these questions of God, and God never answers his questions. In fact, you get to you get to Job, and really this falls under point three as well. The mind of God is incomprehensible. Job goes through this tremendous suffering, and then Job is talking to the Lord, and Job has these friends, so-called friends, that also speak to him about the Lord. And then in chapter 38, the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, so basically, here's God's response. To all of Job's questions. Why did you make me? Why did you let this happen? Who is it that dark, darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's not the way you want to hear a discussion with God go at the beginning. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Let me be the one to ask your questions now. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you, in verse 16, have you entered in the springs of the sea and walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. On and on, verse after verse after verse, God is basically saying, who do you think you are? Where were you when I did all of this in eternity past? Job never receives an answer to the questions he had concerning God and his ways. Friends, it just reminds us this simple truth that's revealed here in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Friend, God needs no counsel. God needs no human input. For he has known the past from the future. He has known everything that has ever been or ever will be. He has always been and he always will be. God needs no counsel, yet that's how many of us in the world treat him, as if he needs counsel. We don't like the way God does something or allows something to happen and we begin to give him advice. 
Friend, when you think you can lecture God, that is the epitome of arrogance and pride. Job learned that lesson the hard way. As righteous as Job was, So we see one of the things that come out of this praise, the wisdom of knowledge of God inexhaustible, the ways of God are unsearchable, the mind of God is incomprehensible, and the grace of God is invaluable. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? It's a reference to Job 41, back to Job. It's a reference to Job 41 verse 11, which says, Who has given a gift to God that God should repay him? What we're reminded of here is simply put is is God is no man's debtor. God owes you nothing. But oh, he gives you everything in Christ. He owes us nothing. The one thing he does owe us is judgment. Because of our own sin and rebellion against him. But beyond that, he owes us nothing. And yet, he gives us everything through the wonderful provision of a Savior. And this is what leaves leaves Paul so overwhelmed as he begins to think of all that God has done. How he's unsearchable. Who could have come up with this? Who knows the mind of the Lord? How could we have explained this? It's only God that could do this. And he concludes there, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be glory forever. God gets the glory for salvation because it is God who did this. And I just ask you, when's the last time you found yourself truly overwhelmed by God? We live in this this world of chaos. We go running about our week like we're just a bunch of crazy people just trying to get things done, right? I mean, some of us literally look crazy when we go into our week. You just follow me around. You see how crazy it can look. When's the last time you've paused and contemplated the depths of God? When's the last time you've been overwhelmed by the majesty and glory of God? When's the last time you've been overwhelmed by the grace of God given to you through Christ? Paul knew full well that the glorious truth of grace had its foundation and fullness in the glory and majesty of God and nowhere else. Is it any wonder that after 11 chapters of unpacking the grace and glory and goodness of God that Paul can't help but proclaim, Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Indeed, friends, that's why we exist. This is why God created the universe. This is why God sent his son to die in the place of sinners. The salvation of sinners is designed to put the beauty and glory of God on display. Our salvation came from God, through God, and it's to God in his glory forever. It's all for him. It's his doing. Therefore, he deserves the praise. I just ask you today, do you find yourself delighting in the glory of God in this way? You find yourself contemplating the depths of God, the grace of God. You know, there's a lot you can fill your mind with these days, a lot. And we're doing it. There's a lot of 
good things and there's a lot of senseless junk out there today that fills our phones and TVs, our family schedules, and even our churches. Foolish things. Brothers and sisters, don't waste your time being thrilled with senseless things when you can be overwhelmed by infinitely glorious realities. Friend, the greatest truth and blessing in all the universe, the most amazing reality that you can ever know and experience will not be found on your story on Instagram, as cute as it may be. And it won't be found even on Disney's Keys to the Kingdom tour at the Magic Kingdom, as magical as that might be. The greatest truth and blessing in all the universe, the most amazing reality that you can ever know and experience, is found in a book. And it points us to the one from whom all things and to whom all things exist. The Lord our God, the Savior of sinners. And to him be glory forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you this morning for all that you are and all that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Lord, it is our delight to know that you are a God who does good in this world for your people. Lord, it is our delight this morning to know know and understand that your plan to bring about salvation will never be hindered. Never. Your mercy will be extended and people will be saved, and that is good news. Father, we thank you that even your plan to bring about salvation, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, Lord, that this plan will never be thwarted and that we can have great confidence that you'll bring it to pass for your glory and our good. Father, as we consider all of these things, Lord, we see how it left Paul humbled. It left him filled with awe and filled with worship of you. Lord, it's our desire to be in that same posture today. And so, Lord, would you help us to see and to feel the weight of your glory in our lives? Father, it may be that we've not felt that or sensed that in some time. And Lord, would you help us to see things we need to change? Distractions that are taking away our focus and attention from you so that we can rightly sense the the goodness of God in our lives, the grace of God that is available. And Father, it may be that there are some here this morning that they have yet to trust in Christ. They've yet to be counted among that full number. Lord, would you bring to pass this day salvation in the hearts and lives of those that would be gathered today that would need it. So Lord, we look to you. As we sung earlier, who else has the words of eternal life? It's you and you alone. And it is to your glory and glory alone. We work and pray and hope. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.